0: If I were to ask you about any villains or bad guys that you would associate with the Christmas season and popular culture, many people would immediately think of Ebenezer Scrooge, the rich yet cold-hearted miser in Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, who utters that famous catchphrase, Bah Humbug. To those who enjoy the children's book by Dr. Seuss, they would think of the Grinch who tried to steal Christmas. But while these two are fictional characters, In the biblical account of Jesus' birth, there is a historical man portrayed as a villain of sorts named Herod the Great. His attitudes and actions that first Christmas certainly would not be ones we should emulate. As we continue our sermon series entitled, A COVID Christmas, Discovering Joy and Peace During Troubled Times, we study Matthew's account of Jesus' early life. We want to take a look at four attitudes exhibited by Herod that would certainly snuff out any joy and peace in our lives, and conversely, realizing that doing the opposite would in turn bring joy and peace during uncertain times. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We take a look at Matthew chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 11. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In these verses, we find out that when Jesus was born, a star appears in the heavens. Either this was a new celestial star or the Shekinah glory of God, which is what I believe because it moves and appears and disappears unlike any astronomical star. Well, miles away, astronomers and wise men who study the heavens saw this star of great light appear. Now, where were these wise men from the east from? Most biblical scholars believe that these wise men were most likely from Persia, modern-day Iran. Now, we're not told why they would associate this new star with the birth of the king of the Jews. Perhaps it was through a special revelation that God had given them. Perhaps they were familiar with the writings of the prophet Daniel, which in chapter 9 of his book tells of the Messiah's birth. And if you remember, Daniel was a scholar in Persia. Or perhaps they knew of the prophecy of Balaam, who was from this region, who in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, talked about a star that came out of Jacob. But whatever the case, the Bible is silent about how exactly they associated this new celestial star, this new celestial body or anomalous light with the coming of the Jewish king. But what is important is that they were willing to travel hundreds of miles on a one to two year journey to see the child king. In verses one and two, we are told that the wise men naturally arrive in Jerusalem one or two years after the birth of Jesus thinking that Jerusalem, being the capital of the land of Palestine, would be where the king of the Jews would be found. And so they sought an audience with the current king of the Jews, which was King Herod the Great, asking where they could find this newborn king of the Jews. And look at their one singular goal, as verse 2 tells us. They had come, they told King Herod, to worship him. You see, the wise men weren't there to crown a new king, nor were they there to recognize a new king over Herod. They simply wanted to worship Jesus. But look at the reaction of King Herod in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, note, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was naturally troubled, thinking that his own rulership could be in jeopardy with this newborn king. His insecurities came probably from the fact that King Herod wasn't a true ethnic Jew. He was an Edomian. These were people from the ancient land of Edom. He was raised as a Jew and came to power because his father was a good friend of Julius Caesar's. You can see why Herod would be troubled when he hears that a king of the Jews had been born. His leadership was threatened. He perceived and felt that everything he had worked so hard for in life was now threatened. And history does tell us that Herod worked very hard using politics, intrigue, and military success to secure his kingship over this land. And those insecurities now came out as a perceived threat to his control over the region and its people would play a role in troubling his heart. And if King Herod was troubled, then everyone around him would be troubled as well. You see, the entire royal courts of Jerusalem would be troubled because there was a chance that the birth of a new king of the Jews could upend their good life, their life as they knew it. Their control and their security that they had with King Herod might be affected if there would be a new king. And they didn't like that. And so they were also troubled by this announcement. So it is in our lives when the security of our lives that we have so worked hard for, to control, is somehow upended or threatened, then there is no peace in our hearts and we are troubled. I believe that's why the pandemic has affected us so much and made people worry about life and feel depressed because life as we know it has been upended and many of our security values that we think we have control over that gives us a sense of peace has been threatened or shaken. So, for example, for years and decades, perhaps your family has a tradition of getting together as family or the gathering of your friends as a tradition during this time of the year to celebrate the holidays or the tradition of perhaps a special out-of-town trip towards the year end, which everyone looks forward to. But these things won't happen for the first time in your lifetime. And so you feel a bit off-kilter. You feel unbalanced. When traditions and regular practices changes and you feel that you are losing control, you don't have control anymore, and it's a scary feeling. Herod thought that he would lose control of his kingdom to this child Jesus. He felt threatened and therefore troubled. His life could possibly change, and he didn't like that, and so he fought against it. You know, it's no different from how we feel when Jesus says he wants to take control of our lives from us and for us to somehow trust Him and let Him lead. We find it very difficult to give Him the reins of our lives so that He can steer it as He so wishes. We know we should. He is the rightful Lord of our lives, but we don't want to submit to His Lordship. We know the changes that submission to His Lordship would entail, so it is in that struggle that we are troubled. In the case of Herod, there is another rightful king of the Jews, then that would mean that he would perhaps have to step down. He would have to submit. He would no longer be in control. It is the same with us. To submit to Jesus' lordship, we have to humble ourselves. We have to step down, and we have to give up our control to Him, meaning we are no longer in control. You see, the first Scrooge attitude, if I can call it that, is this, number one unwilling to give Jesus control over our lives. Unwilling to give Jesus control of our lives. Instead of something positive, we treat Jesus' control of our lives as something negative. In the time of Herod, the coming of Jesus was to be a wonderful, positive thing. The promised Savior had come. There would be hope again. But for Herod, something that should have been positive was something negative because it threatened his leadership. It threatened his control over his kingdom. There is always trouble in our hearts when we try to take control of what is not rightfully ours. We will also live in fear and insecurities knowing that we don't have the right. The Lord has it. And when we try to take it away from Him, then, of course, we will naturally feel insecure. Jesus died for us. He bought us through His shed blood. So technically, our lives do belong to Him. We must submit to His Lordship. Therefore, we will always be troubled when we don't submit to Him. And this is a key truth many people are often forgetting, and they are wondering why they feel so uncertain and troubled. But here's the wonderful thing as it relates to our spiritual lives. When we willingly accept that Jesus is the rightful head of our lives, And it's not us. And when we give him full control, we can sit back and relax. You know, being in control is incredibly stressful. And trying to maintain control when you can't control the environment that surrounds you, when you can't control the people you interact with, when you can't control the future that you have to enter, it's supremely stressful. But isn't it wonderful and, in fact, full of peace When you can give your life over to the one who controls the world. The one who alone can work in the hearts of men and women. The one who knows our future and the future. And that's why peace is found when you give control of your life to Jesus. I don't know if you know, but I'm a terrible gift giver. It's not one of my love languages. If you are familiar with Gary Chapman's five love languages. So it's very stressful when I have to give gifts. And when I was single, I had to buy gifts and had to remember not to get the same thing I got someone last year. When I have to buy gifts, it's often the same thing for everyone every year. Ask my friends in the United States, whenever I return back home, usually once a year, and I bring them gifts, for the past 16 years, it's the same thing. Everyone always gets three bags of dried mangoes. It never changes. So when I got married, I willfully gave control over gift-giving responsibilities to my wife. In fact, she can buy even her own gifts for her own birthday and her own anniversary. So this time of the year is very stressful for her as the gift coordinator of our family. She receives gifts, notes them down, replies back with thank yous, and then also has to think about what to give family and friends and others. She has to make sure she doesn't give what was given last year to the same people, and she has to make sure that she doesn't leave anyone out. She often asks me for my advice or the budget, to which I will answer, whatever you decide, honey, is okay with me. You see, I've learned not to give my opinions or any input, because if I do, she will get me involved, and I find it very stressful. It's not that I don't care, but in this matter, I happily don't want to be in control. I really don't want to be in charge and take with me the added stress. So it is in life, if we only learn to give control of our lives to the Lord, to let Him navigate us during these challenging times, then we really don't have to worry. I don't know if you know this, but when a large cruise boat or a freighter or a large ship enters a crowded harbor or confined waters... The ship captain wisely invites on board one who is known as a harbor pilot or a a port pilot to help navigate and maneuver ships through the dangerous or congested waters that they, the pilot captain, knows very well. Often the pilot captains are former ship captains, but they know that particular stretch of waterway very well. They know where all the sandbars are. They know the depth of the water at certain location. Only a very foolish captain would try to navigate his ship through waters he's unfamiliar with. And so he invites the pilot captain to take control during those difficult stretches of waterways. In the same way, in troubled times, are we able to tell the Lord, Lord, you take control because you know how to navigate me through these times of great uncertainty. There's a wonderful hymn that invites Jesus to pilot our lives, and it goes something like this. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Charts and compass come from thee. Savior, pilot me. It's a wonderful hymn that reminds us that we are to often and always invite Jesus to come and pilot our lives, to take control of our lives, so that we can find peace. Look at verses 4 to 6. And when He had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to Him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod didn't have a clue what the wise men of the East were talking about. And so he consulted all of his advisors to ask them about the prophecy of the Christ. Remember, Christ comes in the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one, the chosen one. And that's the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. So basically... Herod is asking his advisors where the Messiah, the anointed one, according to biblical prophecy, would be born. And they tell him that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles away from Jerusalem, as prophesied by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Herod was the current king of the Jewish people. He was raised Jewish. In fact, it was under his rule that the second Jewish temple was greatly expanded and whose western wall we can see today. He greatly beautified and upgraded the second temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel in order to gain more support from the Jews. It was a sort of legacy project for him so that his capital city would have this beautiful architectural structure so amazing and great in grandeur that the people of the ancient world would be in awe, which they were. But sadly, for a man who grew up in the Jewish faith and who greatly expanded God's temple, he didn't know anything as to the basics of where the promised Jewish Messiah would be born. Imagine that. He expanded the temple, which was the center of the worship of the true God, and pointed to the Messiah. And he didn't even know where the Messiah would be born. Herod didn't know what was the most important thing of faith that he professed to believe that. And the Jewish faith looked forward to a promised Messiah. And Herod, clueless as to where he would be born. In this way, it's like so many of us in the world today. Christmas time is here, so the world puts up decorations, puts up Christmas trees, Christmas music and songs, fill the airwaves. And the world is busy with planning for parties and get-togethers and gift-giving. But the world completely misses out on the biggest, most important aspect of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ and His birth. In fact, as Christians, we all know the Christmas story. It's told and retold, and many of us can, in fact, memorize the details of the story. We know about the Messiah Jesus but we completely miss or forget the most important aspect about Jesus, which is that He is the Savior that has come to save people from their sins. You see, Scrooge attitude number two, forgetting that Jesus is the most important in life. Forgetting that Jesus is the most important person in our lives. Forgetting that Jesus is the most important person in in our life. What often sucks all of the joys of our lives and causes unnecessary stress is when we miss out on what are the most important things and instead focus on the periphery. For example, prior to the pandemic, weddings were increasingly becoming more grand and elaborate. And if you were to ask any couple if they enjoyed the process, most would admit that they were stressed, they were worried, they were tired. They couldn't fully enjoy the wedding and the reception on that day because they had gotten such little sleep leading up to the wedding. And they worried about where to seat their guests. And sadly, they didn't even know two-thirds of people on their guest list. It was their parents' guests. They worried if everything would go perfectly because they had invested so much money into their wedding. They worried if they would remember their first step in their first dance. They worried about getting that perfect Instagrammable picture. They worried about the pressures of measuring up to people's expectations, especially as many have come to celebrate with them. Sadly, they worry about so many things, they completely forget that the most important part of a wedding is that both of them are getting married. They are becoming husband and wife. I can't tell you how many couples that I have officiated where when I asked them, did you get enough sleep all week? They would say, no, Pastor. We average three to four to five hours of sleep a night. They would have eye bags under their eyes, covered by heavy makeup. Yes, they were excited for their wedding, but they were tired. But the pandemic has simplified everything, especially weddings. And it's gotten us wonderfully to the most essential part, of weddings, which is the marriage between husband and wife. I've done a few pandemic weddings, which are much smaller in scale than those pre-pandemic, and they are so beautifully intimate and wonderful. The couple are generally more relaxed. They're able to savor the moment. I recently asked a couple how many hours of sleep they got the night before they got married. One groom told me 10 hours to my amazement. You can see that our troubles come when we focus on the periphery and take our focus away from that which is the most important. So it is in life. Life without joy and peace happens when we focus on the extras, the peripheries of life, the non-important things. When life becomes much more simplified, it becomes a lot more joyful, especially when that simplification brings with it a focus on the most important relationship and person in our life, which is with our Savior, Jesus Christ. When that focus is upon Jesus and we stop caring about what people think of us, we stop trying to live to impress others, we live for one person, and that is so wonderful to have to only live for one person versus living for so many. The silver lining in troubled times is that it sharpens our focus and redirects and aligns us to that which is the most important, and that is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. All the extra stuff have been taken away. Even the unbelieving world understands this truth about the need to focus on what is the most important. Dan Cable is a professor of organizational behavior in London Business School. He wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review. He writes these words. I was 34 when I heard my doctor say, Stage 4, Hodgkin's lymphoma. The news hit me like a punch to the face. I was stunned. Every two weeks for six months, I had to go to the cancer center to receive chemotherapy. I had a hard time getting out of bed on those days. I loathe the nurses injecting poison into me. Once I was there and the chemo slid into the port, making my chest cold and my mouth taste like metal, I fought back panic. I felt too much anxiety, fear, dread, and disgust about the venom in my vein to do much of anything useful. But my doctor, my, my hero, set me straight. My doctor said to me, Sure, chemo was technically poison. But it's also a groundbreaking medicine, and I should feel lucky to have it. If I had been diagnosed before 1980, when doctors discovered how to treat Hodgkin's lymphoma, I would have had to watch my life drain out of me. To put it bluntly, I would have died. This shift in focus from poison to medicine had a big impact on me. Instead of focusing on the negative, I started to think about how chemo was going to allow me to see my daughters grow up. Chemo sessions weren't fun, of course, but the purpose of the sessions seemed different now. My reaction to the chemo slid from resistance to commitment as my resilience and energy improved. Psychologists have a term for how we subjectively perceive the world around us, and it's called construal. What's important to understand is that there are different levels of construal, ranging from low to high, and whatever level we're operating on has effect on our attitudes and actions. Low-level construal is when we think very concretely about the physical details of the present situation. Chemo is poison, and being injected into my veins. High-level control is when we don't focus so much on the concrete detail and think of the bigger picture. Chemo will help me see my daughters grow up. This higher level is optimal because it makes us think of long-term objectives and gives us a greater sense of purpose. To keep focus on the bigger picture, Cable suggests three things. First, figure out how you're spending your time. Second, Choose a narrative for the reason you do what you do. Finally, change your behavior to match your attitude. And he gives this example of a woman named Candace Billups. Candace has worked for over 30 years as a janitor in the Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Michigan. On the one hand, Candace could focus on the low levels of construal, mopping floors and refilling soap dispensers. However, Candace interprets her work in a different way. She says... I'm basically there for my patients. My relationship with the family is really important to me. I see myself as a positive personnel working at the cancer center. In fact, what Cable writes is very similar to what the Bible already teaches us. We are to figure out how we're spending our time for the Lord or for the world, to see if we're living our lives for a greater purpose for the Lord and our heavenly rewards. And then to change our behavior to match our eternally focused attitude. Then we will begin to find joy and peace in troubled times. Because our spiritual construal is set heavenward. And it all begins with not missing out on what is most important in our life. And that is your relationship and my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is what Christmas and the Christmas story is centrally about. Jesus Christ coming down from heaven as our Savior to save us from our sins so that He can be in relationship with us. Herod built the Lord, an expanded temple, and supposedly lived out his Jewish faith, but he didn't even know where the promised Messiah would be born. That's why he was so troubled. Jesus' coming was not a positive thing. It was threatening his very life. Look at me at verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So paranoid and insecure was Herod with the news that he called for a private, secret meeting with the wise men to find out the time that it elapsed between the first sighting of the star by these wise men and when they had arrived in Jerusalem. Now, the question is naturally, why was this meeting done in secret? Perhaps the clue is in his instruction to the wise men. Look at verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Herod asked, that the wise men go to Bethlehem to find the Messiah and to inform Him personally if they found Jesus so that He could go and worship Him. Of course, we know that Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. If so, he would have gone with them. He would have even sent a delegation with them to help them in their great search for the child Jesus. But he wanted to keep this search as low-profile as possible. Tell me when you find Him and I will go. Perhaps Herod was afraid that if this news became public, that others, perhaps those in the royal courts, may want to look for the Messiah as well. You see, he exhibits Scrooge attitude number three. Keeping the good news of Jesus to yourself. Keeping the good news of Jesus to yourself. Our reason may be different from Herod's reason, for not sharing the good news of Jesus. But in many ways, it's also similar. Sadly, many Christians today, even during this Christmas time, where there's a natural conversation starter to tell people about your faith in Jesus, are still afraid to tell friends and family about Jesus and what Jesus means to you. You know, it's really so easy this time of the year to tell people about Jesus. Everyone is talking about Christmas. And so it's natural if you will have the fortitude and the intentionality to turn the conversation spiritual, you can tell people why you're celebrating Christmas. You can tell them about what Christ means to you and how you truly believe that He saved you from your sins. You can tell them about how they can receive this free gift of salvation. We need to remember that God's gift of salvation in the person of His Son Jesus is not something we need to pay Christ back for. In fact, the expectation from our Lord as a response to receiving this free gift, as He tells us in the Great Commission, is for us to share the good news. As William MacDonald writes in his book, Grace of God, to seek to earn merit or purchase salvation is to insult the giver. Imagine yourselves, Invited to a banquet in the White House by the President of the United States. You are seated at a table that is filled with choice foods. Every effort is made to give you a most enjoyable evening. At the end of the lovely visit, the President stands at the door to bid you goodbye. What do you do? As you leave, do you press a dime, a coin into his hand and say, Thank you, Mr. President very much for your kindness. I realize it has cost you a lot of money to throw this meal, and I want to pay you for this meal. Is that the proper response for His kindness? On the contrary, it would be very rude and insulting as a gesture. And so, we shouldn't try to pay back God for His gracious gift of salvation. We should just share it Going back to the story, the natural response is to tell people about the amazing banquet that the president threw and how kind and generous he is as a person. In the same way, if you and I have received the ultimate Christmas gift of Jesus in our hearts, then the natural response is to tell people about what an amazing gift you received and the kindness and the love of the person who gave it. How many Instagram or Facebook stories do you share when you receive a gift and you post it in your stories and tell your circle of friends and those who follow you just how yummy the cookies or the ayuda or the, the food you received is and how, how generous is the person who gave it? Can you do the same with the salvation you've received and the Savior who has given it this Christmas? as one who is the recipient of such an exclusive gift, the gift of salvation. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. As the wise men left the palace of Herod, They saw the star, they first saw the night Christ was born appear, moving ahead of them and and guiding them to the very house where Jesus was living. When they saw the star again, it was as if their faith, their efforts, their journey was worth it. They were overjoyed, the Bible says. The words used by Matthew was trying to describe how happy these men were, exceedingly great joy. What a contrast to the troubled heart of King Herod. The Bible tells us the wise men were overwhelmed with joy abundant. Look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men entered a house, not a manger and saw a young child, not a baby, meaning significant time had passed since the night of Jesus' birth. We don't have any idea why Mary, Joseph, and Jesus remained in Bethlehem. After the census, they could have gone home to Nazareth, but somehow they stick around Bethlehem. Now out of the blue come a group of two, maybe ten, maybe thirty, certainly a delegation of wise men from the East who presented to them three very expensive gifts, Gifts fit for a king. The gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is pretty self-explanatory. Frankincense is a resin used in perfumes and incense, something highly valued in those days. It is the same with myrrh, a, a resin used in the making of perfumes, incense, and medicine. It's also used in the embalming process as well. It too was highly valued. With these lavish gifts, Joseph and his family would have enough resources for an unexpected journey, which we'll talk about next week. While the emphasis is often on the three types of gifts given by the wise men, my friends, that's not the true emphasis. The emphasis should be on the fact, what the Bible says, that they worship Jesus when they saw Him. This is what they told King Herod way back in verse 2, that the very purpose for their long journey is simply to come and worship Him. When they worshipped Jesus, their hearts were full. It was true worship. It was genuine worship. It was wholehearted, fit for the King. We see that this is genuine worship through three actions. First, they exhibited great joy. You can only imagine when they saw the star that they were probably jumping up and down, hugging, clapping. They saw the star which now pointed them to the Jesus they were looking for. And then we recognized their action when they spontaneously fell down and bowed down when they saw the Christ child. And here we see that they gave treasures to Jesus. You know, there was a phrase that jumped out at me in the reading of this story, which I had not noticed somehow before, but in the preparation of the sermon, that phrase just jumped out at me. Their treasures when they had opened their treasures. Would you circle that? These gifts belonged to them. It was their treasures. It, It wasn't leftovers. They had no problem giving it to Jesus because that is what worship is. A willingness to give everything to the one you worship. And they opened up their treasures. And their treasures were gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why when Herod said to the wise men, tell me when you find Jesus, I'll go to worship Him. We know that these were hollow words because his lack of action, of not even the willingness to go a few miles to Bethlehem to see Jesus, or even to send a delegation with the wise men, or to send any gifts on His behalf befitting of a king, was such complete contrast to the actions of the wise men you see Scrooge attitude number four showing through an action no desire to worship Jesus showing through an action no desire to worship Jesus. the actions of our lives really exhibit what's in our heart therefore a lack of joy expressed in action shows that the true heart condition of our lives does not desire to worship Jesus. And this truth challenges us to really examine our lives to see if our worship is more like Herod's, lazy as it is, or is it like the wise men? I have a feeling we're honest with ourselves. We'll note that most of us are generally lazy in our worship of Jesus. I remember a few years ago, I spoke at a children's Christmas program, and I asked the children if they would be excited about receiving certain gifts. I wanted to show them that the best gift of all was Jesus Christ. So when I asked them, would you be excited if you got a toy car? All the boys screamed, yes. And so I asked them, would you be excited if you received the doll for Christmas? And all the girls shouted, yes. And then I asked them something that would be the negative, I asked them, how many of you would be happy if your gift was a sandwich for Christmas? I expected them to scream, no. But to my surprise, they screamed, yes. Apparently, this is either a group who really liked food, or they are appreciative of all things. But as I think about it, I wonder, what would be your reaction if you were a child receiving a sandwich for Christmas? I think most of us would not be very appreciative of that gift to our parents. We wouldn't thank our parents or love them very much at that moment. But you know, my friends, we didn't receive a sandwich. We received the gift of a Savior. Our response naturally should be one to worship Jesus, to show, like the wise men, in tangible actions, the true joy that is in our hearts When we come to Christmas, sometimes if we don't really recognize it, our attitudes are not in the right place. Herod had an attitude that we can describe as being very Scrooge-like, a great unwillingness to give Jesus control of his life, forgetting Jesus being the most important person in his life, keeping the good news of Jesus to himself showing through inaction no desire to worship Jesus. But if you know the story well, the Christmas story by Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge found the true meaning of Christmas and his life change. So if you would allow me to change one or two words from each of these Scrooge-like attitudes to share with you the attitudes we need to cultivate, perhaps it could be like this, willing to give Jesus control of our lives. Remembering that Jesus is the most important person in our life, the most important relationship in our life. Sharing the good news of Jesus to everyone. Showing through action your desire to worship Jesus. May all of our attitudes change this Christmas. For the Savior has come to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. It is a good reminder that when we examine our attitudes, we have to admit that our indifference, the regularity of the Christmas season, has made our attitude very much like Herod's instead of the wise men. I pray this Christmas, in the midst of a pandemic, in these troubled times, that through the simplification In our lives, the focus on Jesus would be made more clear. And I pray that our attitudes would reflect what is in our hearts, that we would indeed be willing to give Jesus control of our hearts, to remember that He is the most important relationship in our lives, that we would be actively sharing the good news of the free gift of salvation through Jesus to everyone, and to live out our desire to worship Him in tangible action. May that be our attitude this Christmas as we refocus our lives on You. Challenge us, Lord, and bless us accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.